This episode is brought to you by our sponsors and by listeners like you on Patreon. Bomba's vision is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you are also giving to someone in need. Bombas has designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. The Webb family over here has used them, and we love them. They're comfy, fun-looking, and come in family packs, which is awesome. I've never seen that before. I use my Bombas socks when I go on runs, and they're extremely comfortable. Everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a cozy feel. And the Bombas t-shirts are made with thoughtful design features like invisible seams, soft fabrics, and perfect waist so they hang just right. And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters? That's why Bombas donates one for every item you buy. So far, Bombas customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. Go to bombas.com slash purple rocket and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash purple rocket for 20% off. Bombas.com slash purple rocket. Parents, school's out, summer's here, and the kids are back at home with a lot of free time. Go wild with wonder this summer without school. Enroll in a fun, flexible learning experience with over 140,000 online classes and camps for every kid with any interest. Look, as a fellow parent, I get the pressure of finding something engaging and useful for our kids to do over the summer break. OutSchool can help keep them engaged and their minds stimulated and their imaginations firing. They offer every kind of class you can imagine, from entrepreneurship to freestyle dancing to art, even magic lessons. There's something for kids of all ages, grades, and interests. We homeschool in the web house, and we plan to get Aurora and Cohen signed up with some out-school activities to keep them engaged in a fun way and help them explore their talents and maybe discover some new ones. Out-school will have your kids loving to learn and having fun doing it. Head over to outschool.com slash purple rocket and use code purple rocket to learn all about out-school summer programs and save $15 on your child's first class. That's O-U-T-S-C-H-O-O-L dot com slash Purple Rocket to save $15 on your child's first class. OutSchool.com slash Purple Rocket, code Purple Rocket. And don't forget, parents, supporting our sponsors is a great way to support this podcast. And now, back to our show. The Purple Rocket Podcast presents Space Train. Previously on Space Train, Doug and the cadets were captured and taken to see the Academy of Exiles, which was under construction. The doctor himself gave them a tour of the campus and revealed that his team of exiles was with him, and they not only planned on forcing the cadets to attend the school, but to help build it. But when the doctor had them go get their things, the space train swooped in and carried them to safety. Or did it? And now for episode 19, The Black Sphere.
can't believe all the exiles survived, Doug said, pacing the cockpit. What are they, invincible or something? The rest of the cadets were just as unsettled. No one could sit down. I should have known they'd be there, Lydia said. I'd seen them at that table in one of my visions. Dallas leaned against the wall. Big whoop. We beat them once, we'll beat them again. They're just a bunch of wackos following an old guy in a fancy chair. Let's turn back around and finish this. Not today, Goro replied. For now, we get all of you as far away from that cursed academy as we can. What? We're just going to leave Blobby there? Dallas said. He's one of us. We have to go back. Goro shook his metal head. I'm sorry, Dallas, but I can't do that. My number one priority is to protect you. I promise we will devise a rescue operation in the future when the circumstances permit. Leo, turn this thing around and go back, Dallas ordered. Leo nervously gripped the controls. He looked back out of the corner of his eye to see if Dallas would physically force him to make the turn. He didn't, so Leo held firm. I said turn around, Dallas shouted. Dallas, stop it, Lydia told him. Goro's right. If we go back, we'll be trapped. We all love Blobby. Doug added. We're going to get him back as soon as we can. Forget you guys, Dallas said. This thing is autopilot, doesn't it? He looked up at the cockpit ceiling. Turn around and take us back, space train. That's an order. The space train continued on. I don't believe that is how the train's autopilot functions, Goro told him. How does it function? Doug asked. Leo pointed to all the buttons on the control panel and shrugged. Even Leo can't figure it out, Lydia said, and he's a genius. I haven't the slightest idea, Goro admitted. But rather than waste time trying to figure it out, I'm going to focus my energy on getting us out of here. I'm taking you all home. It'll be a lengthy trip. Earth is 28 light years away. But at full speed, we may be able to get there in a few hours. What is a light year? Lydia asked. A light year is how astronomers measure distance in space, my dear. Space is too enormous for measurements like feet, meters, or miles. A light year is far greater. It is measured by how far a beam of light travels in one year. You see, there is a speed to which light travels. For example, when you see your neighbor's light turn on across the street, it takes time to travel to your eye and be seen. Granted, it is extremely fast. Light travels at over 670,000 miles per hour. But when it takes one hour to travel 670,000 miles, that would mean that if your neighbor lived 670,000 miles away, when he turns on his porch light, it would take an hour for you to see it. An hour before it reaches your eye. In space, 670,000 miles is nothing. So when we say a distance of one light year, that means that the planet or star is so far that it takes light one year to travel there. It is the equivalent of six trillion miles. That's mind-boggling, Lydia said. Indeed. 
and now you know why I'm constantly pushing the engines to their capacity. We always have a long way to go, and right now, we have to go a long way in a very short time. Why? We're not even being followed, Dallas said, pointing to the rearview monitors. Sure enough, there was nothing behind them but drifting stars. That's weird, Lydia said, looking at the screens. I thought for sure they'd be right behind us. A staticky transmission sounded through the speaker. Leo fumbled with the dial to clear it up. A careful turn to the right, and the static turned into a woman's voice. Don't know what's happening. Our planet is freezing over. Ice is growing on everything. All our power is going out. We can't even keep a fire going. If anyone can hear this, please do something. The cadets slowly looked at each other. Lights started blinking all over the control panel like an obnoxious holiday display. Reds, greens, and yellows flashed everywhere in front of Leo. What are all those? Doug asked. Goro's eyes widened. They're all distress signals. Lydia stared at the blinking lights. All of them? Leo, pull it out of hyperjump! Now! Gora ordered. Leo grabbed the lever and pulled it back. Everyone held on to something as they lurched forward with the sudden stop. Streaking stars in the cockpit window turned to dots. In the middle of them, taking up most of the view, was a giant black sphere floating out in space. The cadets crowded around the window to get a better look. It can't be, Doug mumbled. Is that the tiny black sphere from the doctor's lair? It is, Lydia said. Didn't that ball suck all the light out of the room? Dallas remembered. As the words left his mouth, the lights in the cockpit flickered and the engine's hum quieted. That can't be good, Lydia said. We're losing power, Doug realized. The sphere is sucking it all away. Goro, what can we do? Leo, redirect all power from the rear cars to the main shields and cockpit, Goro said. If we lose juice up here, we're sitting ducks. Leo's fingers blurred over the controls as he followed Goro's command. He paused briefly to blow a warm breath into his cold hands. Seeing Leo chilled all of a sudden made Doug realize he was getting cold too. Chills tingled down his back and legs. He could feel the hairs stand up on his arms and he could see his breath. We're losing heat, Doug said. The climate control systems are extremely taxing on our power supply, Goro explained. He, of course, wasn't affected by the sudden drop in temperature. Putting the train into reserve power mode depletes its heating ability significantly. Leo pointed out the window to a few distant planets on either side of the sphere. The green and gray balls in the background looked like they were icing over. A slow shockwave of blue crept across their surfaces. City lights, tiny dots of light on their darker sides, gradually disappeared. Those worlds are freezing, Doug said, his teeth chattering. That's where the distress signals are coming from. We have to do something. Can we help them evacuate? There's no time, Goro said. We'll freeze before we get to them. Our reserves won't hold for long. 
Lydia rubbed her arms and curled up into a ball in her chair to keep warm. Dallas, trying to hide how incredibly cold he was, took off his jacket and put it over her shoulders. Doug wished he'd thought of that. Dang. Lydia thanked Dallas for the jacket and pulled it tight over her shoulders. As she looked out at the sucking black sphere, an image flashed into her mind. The image of a black sphere exploding. Wait a second. I've seen this, she said quietly. Doug barely heard her. Thank goodness, he said. What happens? Please tell me we don't freeze to death. I don't know, Lydia replied. But I saw that sphere explode. Doug looked back out at the menacing shape. It trembled like a floating blob of tar. Clouds of black drifted from the nearby planets towards it. Okay, so we have to blow it up. No problem. We've blown stuff up before. He looked at Goro. Anything on board we can make a bomb out of? The only thing big enough would be the backup generator, but giving it up would cut our survival time in half. And it will need a good amount of fuel to create a big enough explosion. What kind of fuel? Lydia asked. Goro looked at them. We would have to sacrifice one of the train cars. There was a long silence as the lights dimmed and flickered in the cockpit. Leo snapped his fingers, pointed to himself, and then pretended to be on a toilet. Doug looked at him. What is he? Dude, are you pooping your pants? Dallas asked. Leo rolled his eyes. Then he pointed towards the back of the train and again pretended to be on a toilet. Oh, he's trying to say the sewage car, Lydia finally realized. Of course, the methane gas is extremely flammable. That's a great idea, Leo. The poop car it is, Doug said. Let's cut her loose. That is an excellent idea, Leo, Goro acknowledged. But I'm afraid we'll need something even more potent than poo. I hate to say it, but the Cosmic Cafe has to go. What? No! They all said at once. It holds significantly more gas than any other car due to its many cooking appliances. It's our only chance, cadets. What do you think, Captain? Doug thought for a moment. The cockpit felt like a giant freezer. Frost was starting to crystallize on the control panel, and the window was icing over. I think I'm gonna miss the hover shakes, he mumbled. Doug ran back to the engine room and made a bomb as quickly as he could using his powers. He had no idea if it would work, but after everything else he'd created with his mind, he figured he could mishmash several objects and just give them all one fatal flaw that could be exposed by the press of a button. In his head, the flaws seemed like they'd result in a big boom, but he couldn't be sure. Sometimes he wished he could just let Leo into his head for a few minutes and let him sort it out. After paying their respects and sharing a few groans, the cadets placed Doug's makeshift bomb in the kitchen of the Cosmic Cafe and then detached the car from the rest of the train. From the cockpit, they watched it drift towards the black sphere.
Like an enormous mouth, the black sphere latched onto the silver train car, sucked it close, and devoured it. And just like that, it was gone. Doug almost felt like crying as he thought about all the good times and great food they'd had in that car. His trip down memory lane was rudely interrupted by a loud slurping noise. Everyone looked at Dallas, who was slurping down the last of a chocolate hover shake that floated just in front of his face. Dallas smacked his lips. Mmm. What? You guys didn't grab anything before we let her go? The black sphere shrank into a small dot and then blasted into a shockwave of millions of dark particles. Doug and the cadets ducked as black specks sprayed the cockpit window. Darkness filled the cockpit. Doug's head started to hurt he was so cold. After a few seconds of silence, the lights flickered back on and the engines hummed. Doug and the cadets watched as the layer of frost on the nearby planet slowly retreated. We did it! Lydia cheered. The cadets celebrated and gave each other high fives. But their celebration came to a screeching halt as Leo clapped to get their attention. When he had it, he pointed to the black specks on the window. They were moving. They danced along the glass like raindrops on the windshield of a car driving through the rain. Then, as quickly as they'd gotten there, they flew away. They jumped off the window and flew back to what remained of the black sphere. Doug thought he was watching the explosion play back in reverse as millions of little black dots flew back together, reforming into the giant black sphere. Immediately, the cockpit lights dimmed and the air grew frigid. On the neighboring worlds, the blue layer of frost continued its course, icing over the planets and making them look like frozen grapes. No! Doug cried. What happened? It absorbed all the energy, Lydia said in disbelief. It looks stronger than before. Goro, can we fly out of here? Doug asked desperately. Goro slowly shook his head and looked at them with sad eyes. We've used too much power to last this long. There isn't enough to kickstart the engines. So we're just going to sit here and freeze to death? Dallas asked. Goro didn't answer. Doug scanned over the controls. There has to be something we can do. Suddenly, a green light blinked next to a monitor in front of Leo. Confused, Leo pressed it and the screen turned on. Flashing onto the monitor was the doctor's grinning face. Bravo, cadets, bravo, he said. That was a good effort. Your persistence continues to amaze me. I wanted you to see her for yourself, to behold her power. A remarkable specimen, isn't she? You've only seen a fraction of what she's capable of. She? Is that thing alive? Lydia asked. In a way, yes, the doctor answered. But not alive the way you're accustomed to back on Earth. She is made up of intelligent matter, but one that depends on a master. Unfortunately for you, she obeys only me. 
Surrender yourselves, and return to me, or you and all the worlds around you freeze within the next minute. I'm afraid one minute is an accurate estimate, Goro warned the cadets. Doug looked up from the monitor at the thick sheet of ice building up over the cockpit window. He imagined all the families on those worlds, freezing in the streets and in their homes. In total darkness, they would turn into ice statues. Fine, we'll come back, Doug finally said. Tell it to back off. The doctor chuckled. <laughs> I knew you had a brain in you, Captain Colt. It's about time you used it. I strongly suggest you return with haste before I change my mind. His face leaned in close to the camera. Don't keep me waiting. The screen went black and all the power hummed back on in the train. Doug and the cadets let out a sigh of relief as the blue layer of ice on the surrounding worlds gradually faded. Warm air circulated through the cockpit like a summer breeze. Goro looked at the cadets. It has been an honor serving with you all. It's not over, Doug said. We're just buying ourselves time. Lydia looked at him. What are we going to do? We can't defeat that thing. We might not have to. We've clawed our way out of these situations from the moment we took off. It's what we do. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I believe in you guys. We'll think of something. Goro smiled and then tapped Leo on the shoulder. Turn it around. Leo turned the space train around and they flew back to the Academy of Exiles. When they landed on the moon's surface, the Doctor and his team of exiles were waiting for them, surrounded by a small army of hovering robots. The space train's exit door opened and the cadets filed out. They stopped in front of the Doctor in his hovering chair. Behind him, Clay Bogan, Jojo Mijo, the Turbo Twins, and Diva stood stoically like a team of bodyguards. Leo tried to avoid eye contact with Diva, but he could feel her eyes on him. Hovering robots zipped about the Academy construction site in the background, drilling, hammering, and banging into each other. Don't worry, children. I'm not upset the doctor assured the cadets in his calm, fatherly tone. I'm impressed, truly. You're the only group who has ever escaped me. An incredible feat. We escaped twice, Dallas corrected, and we'll escape again. The doctor smiled. Don't get cocky, child. When you see what I'm capable of, you'll realize how patient I've been with you. He turned his floating chair to face Goro. How did you do it, Figaro? Who swooped in and saved the day? I know the space train doesn't have a sophisticated enough autopilot system to perform such complicated maneuvers. And you certainly don't have other bots that are capable. My search team found only chef-bots aboard. So what was it? Tell me. Goro hesitated. If Doug didn't know any better, he'd think the robot conductor was nervous. 
I myself didn't know it could do that, Goro said. Liar! The doctor hissed. His expression softened. Please, don't make me ask again. The space train is a very special machine, Goro explained. Its abilities are far beyond my understanding. If you say so, the doctor said coldly. His twitching mouth slowly curled up into a smile. Then as a punishment for your escape attempt, I will destroy a piece of your very special machine. Leave the space train out of it, Doug said. I'm afraid that's not an option, Douglas, the doctor sneered. Take the planetarium, Goro suggested. It is an important car on our train, and its loss will prove a fitting consequence. Goro? Lydia interjected, but Goro held up a hand. What do you think? Goro asked the doctor. I think, the doctor mused, I think I'll take the caboose. The caboose, the cadet said at once. Unmistakable terror swept over Goro. He stammered over his words. But as I told you, it's, it's just storage. Excellent, the doctor said. Then it won't matter one bit when we crush it. It'll be nothing more than a harmless demonstration. Boys? He pressed a button on his chair and a dozen bots flew over to the train and detached the caboose. One of the turbo twins hopped into the seat of a massive crane on the construction site and swiveled its arm over the caboose. Hanging from it was a chain holding a massive magnet. The magnet buzzed over the metal train car and then clunk! The caboose lifted and stuck to it. Laughing to himself, the hairy turbo twin turned the crane arm until the caboose dangled over a giant grinder. Doug, for one, couldn't care less if they destroyed the caboose. In a way, the doctor would be doing them a favor. Doug would feel a lot safer knowing there wasn't a giant tentacled monster caged up in the back of the train. But part of him hoped the thing would come busting out and gobble up all the exiles. Unfortunately, that never happened. Instead, the crane lowered the caboose closer and closer to the grinder that was now spinning its metal teeth. A few rocks fell from the caboose's hitch and instantly turned to powder in the grinder. Goro struggled to keep his mouth shut. Doug could tell the scene was torturing him. Still laughing, the Turbo Twin pulled a lever and the caboose lowered within feet of the grinder. Just before it could reach the churning teeth, Goro shouted, No! The doctor held up a hand and stopped the Turbo Twin. I knew it, he smiled. He pressed a button and the caboose was set down in front of them. Open it, he told Goro. Reluctantly, Goro approached the silver train car and pressed his robot hand against a pad by the door. The door slid open. Fog poured out of the opening and seeped onto the moon's surface. Doug and the cadets stepped back. They remembered all too well what followed the fog. 
Search it, the doctor ordered. He pressed a button and a team of bots flew up into the foggy opening and disappeared. Everyone waited anxiously for them to return. Minutes later, two of them emerged holding rubber tentacles connected to some sort of machine. They dropped the weird prop onto the dirt and the tentacles squirmed. What the heck? Doug thought. That was the beast they were terrified of? A bunch of rubber arms connected to a little machine? He looked up. The rest of the bots were emerging from the fog. Doug's heart pounded in his chest, but when the bots floated out, it stopped. Grasped in their arms were the parents of each cadet. Mom? Dad? Lydia cried. Lydia's parents waved weakly to their daughter and then were jerked roughly out of the caboose. Dallas and Doug were too stunned to say a word. They just watched, dumbfounded as their parents, dressed in blue jumpsuits, were carried out and brought before the doctor. The doctor grinned his widest grin ever. Well, isn't this interesting? Holy guacamole, racketeers. Is that what you thought was sitting in the back of the train this whole time? Just you wait for the next episode. It's going to be crazy awesome. Earlier in this story, you learned a little something about light years. Now, the whole idea of a light year is one of my favorite things in astronomy. And let me tell you why. Just to recap, a light year is how long it takes a beam of light to travel in one year. And light travels super fast, 670,000 miles per hour. But like I said in the episode, in space, hundreds of thousands of miles is nothing. We're talking about trillions upon trillions of miles. And one light year is the equivalent of six trillion miles. To put that into perspective... The closest star you will see in our night sky is a little over four light years away, which means that it's so far that the light coming from that star takes over four years just to get to our eyes when you're looking through a telescope. Now, there are stars up in the night sky that you'll look at that are much, much older than that. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of light years away from Earth. The Andromeda Galaxy, for example, that cool spiral galaxy you can find with a telescope, is over two and a half million light years away from Earth, which means it's so far that it takes two and a half million years for light to travel from there to here. Now, in case you haven't made the connection yet, that technically means that you are seeing what that galaxy looked like two and a half million years ago, you are looking into the past. So when I said that star was only four light years away, 
you are seeing what that star looked like four years ago because it has taken that long for its light to get to you. So for all we know, that star could have burned out by now, but it still looks fine to us. It could have gone supernova. In fact, a bunch of the stars in our night sky might have burned out already, and we wouldn't know it because we're seeing what they looked like thousands if not millions of years ago. So if that doesn't put the sheer size of space into perspective, I don't know what will. But that's largely how astronomers measure distance in space. Light years. The distance a light beam travels in one year. So cool. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed the story, and I hope you enjoy the climax that's coming real soon, so stay tuned. Thank you so much for listening, Rocketeers. This is your host, Greg Webb.